Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. of our liturgical services, and especially in the divine office, we pray the Our Father silently, as also the Apostles' Creed many times. Uh, this practice of praying the Our Father silently harkens back to a time when there were doctrines and truths and prayers and practices in the church, ritual and ceremony, which were actually kept secret. They weren't, you know, paraded around in public. We've sort of lost this culture of, of the privacy of the precious truths and beliefs of our faith in our day and age. Actually, for a very long time, this, this sense has been lost. But this was very much a part of the culture of the early church. It was very important, actually. These things, including the Our Father, the Creed, they were reserved for the illumined for the initiated, for those who had been baptized and brought into the family. This was for the family, these precious things. This was not for public consumption. I was discussing this recently with some parishioners and explaining about why we say the Our Father uh, silently so often and how many of our practices and doctrines were actually not taught to a new believer until after uh, their baptism, which may sound rather surprising. It wasn't, there was a whole sort of catechesis called mystagogy that took place after you were baptized. That's when you kind of were told all the inner workings of things. Like, now you'll get to learn what you're in for. <laughs> um, and the, one, of the, one of the people I was talking to asked, asked an excellent question immediately, very perceptive, something along the lines of, well, then how did they know that they wanted to be a Christian if they didn't know what it all entailed or understood all the beliefs? That's a very telling question, actually. A very good question. It says a lot. It says a lot about how we approach the faith in our day and age, in general. It says a lot about how all of us probably approached orthodoxy in particular, seeing as 99% of us here became orthodox later in life. Well, the kids, I forgot how many kids, excluding the children. (laughs) So maybe it's only 10% of us. Um, At any rate, we kind of come to the faith in our day and age And we come to orthodoxy, as from other traditions, we come and we're going to, you know, gather the data. We're going to gather and analyze the data. And we're going to look at the expectations, we're going to calculate the costs and the claims of the beliefs, and then we're going to decide. 
after we've done a full and thorough investigation into all of these things, we're going to decide if I feel comfortable, convinced, do I want to sign now on the dotted lines. And even then, we're going to look for the small print, and we're going to try and discover whatever loopholes might be there, uh, just so that we can kind of have a little bit of room to maneuver once we sign on the dotted line. I mean, is that not true? That's how we come to faith, and that's how many people come to investigate orthodoxy from whatever tradition they're coming from. But just, you know, just taking things as straightforward and raw as we can, that is not how someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It never was. And it's not supposed to be that way, really. Think back. They heard the gospel. They heard the preaching of the gospel. Usually probably a pretty simple sermon of who Jesus is. They heard the gospel and they were quickened in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, convicted of the truth. They knew that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and who the church says he is, that he rose from the dead. He will return to judge the living and the dead and that apart from him there is no life. He is the one Lord and Savior of all. And they fall down and worship him. And they pledge total obedience to him. And they say, I will trust you with my life. Without knowing really much at all about what that's going to mean for them. That's how you become a Christian. I mean, you know, there might be a several thousand page contract. That when you, get to, when you become a Christian, you don't even get to see it. You don't read any of it. Our insurance salesmen are laughing, thinking about the contracts they have to read. You don't even see the contract. And quite frankly, he gets to alter the contract at will anytime he wants. <laughs> so it doesn't matter anyway. We don't get asked about every clause. We're told to sign. When we come to faith in Christ, we sign. The signature is, follow me. <laughs> sign here. Follow me. Do you think for a moment that Peter understood what awaited him when Jesus said, follow me, and Peter followed him? How about Matthew and Andrew and James and John and all the rest? Now, Paul. Maybe Paul had a very slight indication what he was getting in for. That maybe this Jesus was not going to take him to Club Med when he knocked him off his horse and blinded him for three days. Maybe he had some kind of a clue what was in store. But it wasn't until after he said yes that Jesus actually, actually showed him all the things that Paul must suffer for my sake. You know, our contract, we're not given a a big long contract to scrutinize and, you know, consult with legal counsel about. Our contract consists of one clause. Jesus is Lord. Follow him. And whatever he tells you, do it. And you'll have eternal life. As an aside, I've been thinking about this over the past few years as it relates to inquirers into orthodoxy and catechism class been thinking about how how should this like form or shape or 
how we do catechism or how we talk to inquirers. How can it? I'm not suggesting for one moment, please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that it is wrong for those of us from other Christian traditions to approach orthodoxy and ask questions about doctrine and practice and try and understand what this all means as we decide whether or not we're going to become orthodox. This is an inescapable reality in our day and age. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. It's the context we're in. It's the reality that we're in. But what I am saying is that we need to realize that this reality is as a result of sin. It's a result of sin, of the fracturing of Christianity, which gives us this very bad, wrong impression that we somehow have this plethora of choices to make when it comes to the Christian church according to our personal tastes and you know, what we think is right, what we think is wrong. You know, if you go back to the early church, that didn't exist. You were in or you were out. If you wanted to follow Christ, there was one thing it meant, and the only one thing. Well, has that changed? I don't think so. I mean, if it's changed, then Christianity's not true. But it's a little more complicated than that, I suppose. Too much to get into to this morning. But the point is the attitude. The attitude. And that attitude is completely foreign to the spirit of Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So somehow, somehow, even those who are coming to orthodoxy from another tradition, which includes, as I said, most of us here this morning, we have to come in the right spirit. If this is the church and apostolic faith, I'm in. I'll spend the rest of my life sort of figuring out what that means in a universal and objective sense, and then I'll also find out what that means for me personally, day to day. Because there might be and there will be surprises along the way. I mean, when I put this dog collar on, you know, I didn't know what all that meant. I just knew I was saying yes to whatever it meant. I mean, I counted the costs. I was just saying yes. And then he has carte blanche. Our gospel lesson this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 8. And just before Jesus and his disciples get into this faded joy, voyage, uh, there's, a, there's another little pericope, another few lines that really should belong to, that do belong to this story in Matthew's mind as he writes them. But what happens immediately before they get into the boat? There, there are two would-be disciples that approach Jesus. And their exchange with him, as I said, is important to the storm story. You'll, you'll recognize it immediately. The first would-be disciple says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Because this is a story about discipleship. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's sort of tongue-in-cheek here, prepping us for him lying in the boat uh, during this seismic, you know, traumatic storm. The second would-be disciple says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says something which sounds a little harsh. I guess blinding Paul was a little harsh too. But he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, 
when Jesus said to Peter, follow me, and Peter dropped his nets and went trotting down the beach after Jesus, Jesus didn't turn around and say, oh, I, uh, I should warn you, you're going to be crucified upside down before this is all over. Are you sure you want to sign up? He didn't say that to Peter. He just let Peter innocently, you know, follow him without the warning. But these two, these two would-be disciples, he kind of warns them. They have no idea or what they're getting into. Why does he warn them and not Peter? Well, I think it's because he knows that Peter, I mean, he's God, he knows that Peter and all the others, they're all in. They're all in. And that's what matters. They only need the one clause. I believe in you no matter what. These other two, he knows, they're tire kickers. They're analysts, window shoppers, finaglers. After many of Jesus' disciples left him, you remember when he said those hard things, many of his disciples left him and he turned to the twelve and he said, are you going to leave me too? St. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, he says, quote, also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even when he said that, he still had no idea what that was going to mean for him <laughs> and the rest of them. No idea, really. But it didn't matter so long as they were with Christ. The first line of our gospel this morning says, as he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. The very next line says, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. You have said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Sign me up. What did we expect? <laughs> I mean, did we read Matthew? Matthew wrote this story for us. What did we expect? A feather bed and bonbons? What we got was a great tempest. But what we got was an incredible opportunity to live in the power of God and to be a part of putting creation back in order, of restoring beauty to this whole world and to our own lives. So often, unfortunately, like the disciples in the boat, we cry out, we're going to die. <laughs> we're going to die. You brought us out here to kill us. And Jesus says, why are you being so cowardly? <laughs> That's what he said to the disciples. Why so cowardly? Why such little faith? Watch this. Then he calms the storm. Be courageous and believe in Christ who is risen from the dead. What kind of followers are we? What kind of followers are we? Faithful and courageous. 
the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.